0: welcome to the tangent
1: (laughs) halloween extravaganza it's not really i didn't know we had a title it's not really an
0: extravaganza
1: (laughs) no it is not if anything this is uh
0: this is my saint isaac (laughs) jokes costume
1: yeah, Whoa. yeah, we're,
0: <laughs> we're doing an a All Saints Day Trunk or Treat for the kids, and uh, nice. so I'm going to be Isaac nice. Jogues, so I've got a little hatchet that goes in my head. Nice. Yeah, well, nice. you know, I want to honor the North American martyrs properly. As yeah. you
1: should. My rosary is a third-class relic of St. Isaac Jogues.
0: I also have a bag of severed fingers. Um,
1: <laughs> not real fingers, sorry, I should, I should specify.
0: Uh, these are fake but, you know, Isaac Jogues famously on his, especially on his right hand, his thumb and his index finger uh, were removed and uh-huh. removed by Weasel. By, by Weasel? Weasel. Yeah. They like, they fed his fingers to Weasels. Wow. Um, yeah. Crazy. Um, That's so, so weird. I, well, the Iroquois, the they believed that because he, he held his fingers like this when he you know, yeah. his thumb and index finger came together when he celebrated Mass and when he gave blessings, so they thought that those fingers contained magic power. I see. And so they, they cut them off so
1: that he would lose his magic power. Right. Isaac joked. I just meant the weasel eating was weird. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it, that, that is too, yeah. Um,
0: it's, okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a mighty <laughs> creative as...
1: way to approach <laughs> things. Um, yeah, as long as we can agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, today we're talking about exorcism. With an exorcist. That's pretty cool. And and I think we should proceed by saying that maybe unexpectedly this was one of the calmest interviews we've ever had.
0: Uh, it was definitely a calm interview. That's that's for sure. But I think the, the – I mean the other fascinating piece with all of this is the, the, the piece So forgive my my mm-hmm. use of, of homonyms there. Um, but the, I do. I, fr- thank I you. forgive thank you. you. You're but the, the real genuine peace – that Father Vincent Lampert brings to his conversations about this. Exorcism is, is a topic that, that gets a lot of excitement, emotion, fear, uh, there's, there's lots of questions that come up with it. I've had more conversations than I can count with kids who want to know if, if it's possible for them to get possessed. Um, mm-hmm. and if you ever want to throw off a religion class real fast, um, bring up the subject of demons and the kids are off to the races and you're not getting them back. They're not coming back on track. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but a, a, a subject matter that can be really challenging to talk about, he just brings a piece to it. And I think that's the, that's the key reminder with that piece there's nothing for us to be afraid of. We don't have to get caught up in all right. the, the hype and all the emotion and everything. Just to stay peaceful and focused on Christ, which is what he really does. Extremely powerful.
1: Yeah. I, I actually love how he's a, he's a fairly meek person. You know what I mean? Like he is not like – he. I don't know. Maybe it's because that's how the movies portray it, right? It's this – like it's Russell Crowe, you know? Like big, muscular – Russell Crowe being Russell Crowe all the voice. time. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's not, that's not who Father Vincent Lambert is. You know, he's he's soft spoken and he's but it's, it's, calm and, yeah, it's, it's meek in the proper sense of what meek is. Right. Like, yes. Right. Yeah. Do, do we have this conversation on the tangent
0: before the meeked horse? So no. the the idea of of the word meek was actually something that would would apply to horses trained to go into battle fully in control of themselves, fully aware of their own strength and their own limitations. Mm. And so when when a horse was was properly in control and and able to, to do what was necessary and to do what it was ordered to do, the horse was considered a meeked horse. So these these war horses had to be trained to withstand all kinds right. of stresses and difficulties and attacks and noises and frightening, terrifying things. And it seems to me that an right. exorcist needs to be uh, trained for the same Meek. thing yeah well like right, as, yeah, as he yeah. said the thing that hollywood gets right is all the special effects all the crazy things that you see happening the pea soup vomit and all that stuff exactly But what hollywood might be missing is the strength that comes from christ to stand in the face of all of that yeah this is a fun interview <laughs> this was a good time
1: absolutely yeah. yes
0: well enjoy it yes. folks and uh be not afraid
1: Welcome to the tangent. My name is Matt Spirazza. I'm
0: Father Sam Kachuba. Today we are joined by Father Vincent Lampert. Uh, Father Vince, you are a priest of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, correct?
2: Yes, I've been a priest since uh, June the first of nineteen ninety-one. So I'm in my thirty-second year. Awesome.
0: Great. Wow. Well, welcome to the tangent. Thanks so much for for making the time to uh, to be with us. This is another one of our timely episodes, Matt. Uh, we don't, we, yes, we don't often is. get to do timely episodes. Usually our episodes, like, yeah. you can just air them anytime. But this one, really excited to have you on at this time of year uh, because, Father, you have the unique ministry of serving the church uh, as an exorcist.
2: Yes, I have been appointed to that role by my bishop since uh, 2005. I'm now in my 18th year. So I'm the stably appointed wow. exorcist for Indianapolis. Indianapolis has always had a priest in this role. Even when it wow. fell out of practice in any other diocese, Indianapolis has always had a designated exorcist.
0: Hmm. Now it's a role that's necessary, a ministry that's needed year-round. But I imagine that you probably get tired of of getting questions around this time of October, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, let's all talk about the horror movies and everything. So how can we how can we understand this as a ministry that the church offers and not just as a, a figure Uh, at Halloween time or in in horror movies.
2: Right, or a Hollywood phase or (laughs)
0: the
2: lot. One of my favorite statements in regards to exorcism ministry is the line in Scripture in the book of Genesis when God says, let there be light. And for me, the ministry of exorcism is about casting the light of Jesus Christ onto people who have fallen into the darkness of the evil one. So even though it's October, Halloween is just around the corner, many people may be fascinated by the demonic and his darkness, but really the ministry of exorcism is about focusing on Jesus Christ and his light that he wants to shine into everyone's life. So the focus is always on what God wants to do and not necessarily on what the devil is trying to do. Hmm. I love that way of
0: looking at it. Why do you think it's so easy for us to focus more on what the what the devil's
2: trying to get us to do? I think in today's world, the devil's become almost a charismatic type of figure. You know, the demonic can play on a person's memory and imagination. If you look at the entertainment industry today, there's such a great fascination with the devil. There's so many movies out there right now that have just come out. You think of ones like Nefarious, The Pope's Exorcist exorcist believer. It's now the 50th anniversary of the movie, The Exorcist. So people get caught up in all of that. And usually when they get caught up in that whole world of darkness, people are fascinated by all the theatrics of the devil, you know, the head spinning and pea soup flying and, (laughs) you know, bodies levitating. That can get anybody's attention. Mm -hmm. But in reality, again, the focus should always be on, on God and his power. Yeah.
0: When you when you're asked questions about this, even even just sitting here with you right now, I'm I'm noticing uh, like a real calm about everything. But exorcism, I know, is is something that can get kids riled up. It can get any adult riled up too. It it can be something that's that's it's it's intriguing, exciting, a little fearful. Um, I can remember countless times going in to talk to, especially middle school religious ed groups, and they've maybe just seen something like The Exorcist for the first time. Um, so they want, is it real? Can that happen to me? Um, and there's a certain... Like, fascination, but even like a little bit of a fear. what what would happen like how How can this happen to me? And like seeming so I could get possessed? Um, and there's there's a, a fear about it. And what I appreciate listening to you, just this like nice, calm demeanor. How do we answer those kinds of fears and that kind of energy level, emotion level with the truth and with that light that you're that
2: you're speaking about bringing? You know, the devil was cast out of heaven, but he wasn't cast out of creation. God can still use the devil for his greater purposes. So even when people deal with extraordinary Mm -hmm. demonic activity, and the church does recognize four types, demonic infestation, the presence of evil in a location or associated with an object, vexation, physical attacks, obsession, mental attacks, and then possession, whereby the devil or some other evil spirit would take control of a person's body, treating that body as if it were its own. The eyes to Mm. see, the mouth to speak, the ears to hear, and so on. But everything the devil is doing, we can use to our advantage. Because an enemy will only attack at a point of weakness. And so if the devil allows us to identify a weakness in our spiritual armor, then we know where we need to put in some more effort to grow in holiness and virtue. So again, you know, the devil's not free to do whatever he wants. People should never put God and the devil on the same playing field. The devil is still a creature, very powerful and intellectual, but he can only do that which God permits him to do. So even in the the ministry of exorcism, one of the questions to ask would be, why is God permitting this? And ultimately, it would be for the betterment of the person to really help them to see the importance of faith and to grow in their own relationship with God. Hmm.
1: It's it's interesting that you say that it can be used to our advantage. Cause I have, I, I was actually just having this conversation with Father Sam yesterday in, in preparation for this interview of, well, I know I know plenty of people, right? And and one of the reasons that I was hoping we could even have this interview is that I have family members who who don't believe, you know, in the entire like spiritual world if you will, right? Like that's not a piece of their reality. Um and stories are a good way to evangelize. And so the idea of using it to our advantage. I'm I'm curious what your opinion is, but I think it's going to be yes considering that you have a public ministry and also you know that you just said we can use these things to our, our advantage have you seen great have you seen great conversion come from hearing stories of of exorcism
2: absolutely i think that's one of the reasons why my bishop gave me permission to be public in the ministry many exorcists choose to remain anonymous they don't want to be known but i think it's a way of evangelizing it's teaching people mm-hmm. about the reality of evil but the the devil operates on fear. And if we can really root fear out of our lives, then we take away one of the primary tools that the devil can use to try to control and manipulate us. So the more that people know about the devil, the reality of evil, and you're right, there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. out there who would say they don't believe in any of this, that evil, if it does exist, is nothing more than humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. In other words, it's something of our own making, but certainly not personified in what the church teaches about the devil and these other fallen angels. As someone who's public in the ministry, I currently receive about 3,500 requests a year from people all over the United States and other parts of the world who are seeking help from the church. What's interesting about some of these stories, and I I got one recently from a uh, a young lady in Australia who said that she had listened to one of the interviews that I gave, and she said she grew up with no faith. But it really inspired her to think about the role that God should be playing in her life, and she said she went out Mm. to the local Catholic parish, she signed up for RCI classes, and she's looking forward to being received into the church at the Easter Vigil Mass next year. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Wow. Oh, so
0: good. Um, when, you're, when you're doing...
1: I kind of love that we're using the devil's game against him. I just want to throw that out there. I, I love it. Well, that's, you know, everything the
2: devil is doing. You know, I always tell people in an exorcism, when the priest holds up a crucifix, why is that done? Because when Jesus is being crucified, the devil believes that it's his moment that he's won, but the moment of his perceived mm-hmm. victory is actually the moment of his defeat, because then the devil realizes that everything that he was doing to lead Jesus up to the crucifixion was actually playing into God's hands. Hmm.
1: that's that's something if you don't mind. I know I, we're called the tangent because we go in every <laughs> different direction, you know, like known yeah. to man. Um, can you talk about that a little bit the the idea of the devil leading Jesus to the crucifixion?
2: Absolutely. you know I tell people that one of the things that's unique about Christianity, it's that it's not about our search for God, it's about God's search for us. If you go back to the the story of the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve had sinned and they go and hide, God is the one who comes to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Now, obviously, God knew where Adam was, but he's searching for him because he knows that he has sinned, and he wants to see if Adam will take accountability for his sinfulness. Of course, he blames the woman who then blames the serpent and We've been playing Mm -hmm. the finger-pointing game ever since. But then Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And I would suggest that when God cast them out of the garden, that that was a form of love and mercy. Because if Adam and Eve had approached the tree of life in the state of original sin, there would have been no hope for redemption. But God cast them out into the wilderness, into the desert. And then think about when Jesus begins his public ministry. He's baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And then he's driven by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest the reason he goes there is in search of lost humanity. But the very Mm -hmm. first one he has to contend with is the devil, the one who caused the fall of Mm -hmm. humanity. But then Jesus overcomes the temptation that Adam and Eve had succumbed to. And then after that, Jesus goes and looks for lost humanity. Great accounts in the Gospels You know, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and and goes in search of the lost one, I would suggest the lost one is lost humanity. The woman who has 10 coins and loses one and sweeps the house diligently searching for it, that's God searching for lost humanity. So God is always the one who takes the first initiative in helping to restore us back to our right relationship to him. And I think the ministry of exorcism really is one of the tools that God is using to find lost humanity. And again, to restore them back to their proper dignity.
0: Mm. So when we talk about the ministry of exorcism um, and of of the ministry of an exorcist, uh, we have the the ritual that the church provides the prayer that affects this this incredible thing um, to drive out demons and to to conquer the power of, of Satan. Um, but the way that the movies depict it, you know, I need an old priest and a young priest and that seems sufficient. Like as, as long <laughs> as we've got those two things, that that's enough. Um, or you'll even see in, and popular shows like on TV, they'll, they'll talk about, oh, this, this person, we thought that they were possessed. So my, my mother and, and a couple of her friends got together to perform an exorcism. And, um, so you're, you're, you're sort of. Sometimes the a, a TV show might present it as, uh, "This is what very credulous people who are sort of irrational in their faith might look for," or "This is something that's right. that's kind of mysterious, but there's certain requirements." So, an old priest and a young priest are required, and and that's about it. Um, <laughs> clearly, we know that there that there's much more. So, can you walk us through what this ministry looks like, what it really is, what's what's actually needs yeah. to take place? In order for this to be done in in such a way that uh, we keep in mind that it's, this is not just a show, this is not something, this is something that's actually really serious, mm-hmm. and at the same time very beautiful.
2: You know, exorcism at its very core is a prayer. It's a prayer that's directed to God or a command given to demons to help that person to be restored to a relationship with God. We might even say that in an exorcism. The devil is commanded to return that which he has stolen, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God. So one of the main things that all of our listeners should remember is that it's a prayer. It really is praying for people. And, you know, we're not saved by any formula. We're saved by a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ. You know, even in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander. He's the main actor. And then we rely on the power and the authority that Christ has given to the church and to the church as ministers. In fact, the bishop in the diocese, he is the exorcist. You think of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends the 12 out, and he gives them the authority over all unclean spirits. And as Catholics, we know that the bishops are the successors to the apostles, so they have that authority. And then they can bestow that authority on one or more of their priests asking them to do this ministry in their name. But really, again, at its core, it's a prayer. You know, when I was appointed back in 2005, I became one of only about 12 stably exorcists in the United States. Hmm. And so the church says the best way to learn the ministry is through the apprenticeship model. It's one thing to be able to go and read and learn about everything the church teaches about the reality of evil and the devil, it's another thing to have practical application so mm. i i was fortunate to be in rome in the early part of 2006 for three months and i mm. found a franciscan priest who allowed me to mentor under him his name was father carmine de philippus he along with father gabriel amorth who's well known the former chief exorcist in rome sure they were mm. both trained by a passionist priest father candido Amentini who did exorcisms at the Holy Stairs in Rome. So it's the church located near the Basilica of St. John Lateran. And then Father Carmine permitted me to sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during the three months that I was in Rome, and that allowed me to learn firsthand the way to minister to people who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. Forty exorcisms in three months. And he actually, he did more than that. Those are just the ones that I set in on. I would go about two to three days a week to meet with him, but he literally did them every day. The first day I arrived at his church, he was pastor of St. Lawrence outside the walls, where the relics of St. Lawrence the Deacon are. Mm -hmm. There would always be about 50 people in the courtyard waiting to see him. Some had appointments, some did not. Some were already even manifesting the demonic in the courtyard as they were waiting to see him. Wow! So, so
1: what does that mean? Manifesting the de- demonic?
2: You know, look the signs of the demonic would be uh, eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling, snarling, uh, a very deep authoritative voice, bodily contortions, bodies dropping to the ground right. and slithering like a snake across the floor. I witness levitation. I mean, let your imagination run wild. Think of these movies that we've seen. Right, all of those things are really true. They do happen. And I think where I was going to say where Hollywood gets it wrong is they're focusing on these theatrics of the devil rather than focusing on God. But all of these things that we see, mm. they're true. They do happen.
1: Hmm.
0: Hmm. Now. If somebody wants to have, it believes that they are are possessed. I mean, how does somebody end up sitting in the courtyard waiting for an exorcist to to come and help them? <laughs> like, how 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 does the person who is possessed get to that point? Like, they have an appointment they to go. They an take an airplane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have an appointment to go and see somebody for this. Um, how how does it get to that point that they've? if they're possessed or if they're if they're dealing with this I, what's the what's the, the
2: pull and the push and the, the give and the take there i think a lot of it depends on the country in which one comes from you mm-hmm. think here in the united states mm-hmm. we're more skeptical you know we're skeptics maybe we don't believe in the reality of evil we think that somebody is just suffering from a mental health issue and if they just get the right mental health care or medication they'll be fine but other parts of the world People are more readily to accept the possibility that what one is suffering from May be due to a spiritual cause So whether that's you know in Italy, you know in Italy there are 300 appointed exorcist Poland has 300 I was in South Africa a few years ago where they didn't really have any But again people accept the possibility that it's not just something mental or physical But it could be a spiritual cause So each country can kind of put together its own protocol. Here in the United States, people are required to have some type of a mental health assessment. And it isn't because the church doesn't believe them. But if one is suffering from the demonic, they need to be in a good mental state. Kind of that edge needs to be taken off before they Mm -hmm. go through the rite of the church. They need to have a physical examination by a medical doctor to rule out any medical explanation for what they're dealing with i would do an intake questionnaire with the person trying to determine if this is demonic what was the entry point what did the person do either directly or indirectly that permitted the demon to afflict them i would look for four possible signs of demonic possession that the church has identified the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual having superhuman strength, having elevated perception, knowledge about things that that person should not otherwise know, and then a very negative reaction to anything of a sacred nature, such as being blessed with holy water or being shown a crucifix. And then the final step of the protocol would be to help the person normalize their relationship with God. I would even suggest that casting the demon out is the easy part, The harder part is to Mm -hmm. convince someone that they need to live in a right relationship with God. Hmm. Wow. Does
1: that, do those four always happen?
2: Not necessarily all those four. Those can be four possible signs because they reflect an angelic nature, even one that's fallen, because the belief is that when God created the angelic world, he gave them infused knowledge. They didn't have to learn anything. And so by talking to somebody, and I know that they don't speak Greek or Latin, for example, and then all of a sudden that language comes out of the person's mouth, that would give me kind of the moral certitude, meaning beyond a doubt, I know this is no longer that person yeah. but the demon.
0: Hmm. You say that in the United States, there's a kind of a standard of a, a psychological uh, intervention. Is that the case everywhere or… Is that just kind of particular to the way we would do it in the United States?
2: I think that's particular to the way that we do it. I've been in other okay. countries of the world, and you know, people will always say, well, the fact that you believe in these spiritual creatures puts you in the minority, but the reality is that there are more people on the planet that believe in angelic creatures, good and fallen, than those mm. who do not, even though that mm. may be the more, pro- uh, I don't know, dominant mentality here in the United States that's certainly not true across the world
0: is it necessary every time somebody uh, approaches you for example to have permission from the bishop to to do the exorcism I know that they'll talk about uh, if an exorcism if somebody believes that they're possessed the bishop has to have some kind of an investigation into it to find out is this person really possessed and then uh, the priest who's going to do the exorcism has to get permission but if you're stably appointed as the exorcist is that Still necessary? What's the proper protocol?
2: That will be determined by each bishop. So, the bishops that I've worked under, you know, I was appointed by Archbishop Daniel Beekline back in 2005. Ironically, he was the uh, former rector of St. Meinrad College in southern Indiana, operated by the Benedictine monks. So, he was a Benedictine monk who became my archbishop. We knew one another, which is why I think he selected me. To take on this role because in 2005 the exorcist in Indianapolis passed away. I was reappointed by um, now Cardinal Joseph Tobin, who's the Archbishop in Newark, and now by Archbishop Charles Thompson, the current Archbishop of Indianapolis. But all three of those bishops that I've worked under have told me that I did not need their permission to do an exorcism, that if Mm -hmm. I believe that it needed to be done, then I had their complete trust and confidence to do whatever i believe was necessary to help this person hmm.
1: so th- this whole conversation thus far has been reminding me of this prayer called radiating christ um and quite frankly i don't remember if i've brought it up on the show but i did bring it up to one of our other our other hosts on veritas father joseph gill
0: Stop shouting um, him out. Who no, I have keep, now we met. We keep naming him. I know. It's, it's too much. We
1: <laughs> I need to treat him like Voldemort. You <laughs> shall not be named or something. I mean, <laughs> I love Father Joseph Gill. I but the, the prayer... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. Don't lie. <laughs> um, but the uh, the the way the prayer starts is, Dear Jesus, help me to spread your fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of yours. Um, and I know that I spoke to Father Joseph because that language, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's language I only know, you know, in the context of exorcism. Um, and so I just wanted your take on
2: that, that language in a prayer to God. To me, in that prayer, to be possessed means to live within the realm of God. Because, strictly speaking, if somebody is possessed, you know, a a truly spiritual creature, as St. Thomas Aquinas would tell us, is not contained by space, it contains the space. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is possessed, it literally isn't that the demon is inside of that person per se, but that the demon Mm -hmm. is containing that person. And an exorcism prayer would break that containment, taking the person from the realm Mm -hmm. of the evil one, but then placing them within the realm of God. So again, in that prayer, I think, the request is being asked to always live in the realm of God. Hmm. Yeah. I like that prayer a lot. I,
1: I, I'm, I'm in just admittedly, you know, I think that it's a, I guess I always looked at it like that's, that's the equivalent to like fill me with the Holy Spirit basically.
2: Yeah. And that notion of the fragrance of Christ, what is that? Cause it makes me think that one of the, uh, signs of demonic possession is a very horrible stench. And whenever a demon is present, the stench is like, I always tell people, think of that raccoon that's been sitting by the side of the road for like two weeks during the heat of summer and you drive by, it doesn't smell good. That doesn't <laughs> even come close to the stench of a demon. But then you think of the fragrance really? of Christ and radiating his love and all of that. You know, that's just something... Wonderful to to uh, I don't know hold on to and what's really yeah. nice about that prayer, too It makes me think of that line again about let there be light Again, we're turning lights on the devil wants to turn the lights off I Always say that you know the devil's like a cockroach If you go into a room where there are bugs and you turn on the light they scurry for every dark you know crack and crevice and in an exorcism the church is throwing the light of Christ onto these demons who are possessing the person, and when that happens, they will scurry and flee, trying to get back into the darkness.
0: As you're mentioning the, the numbers over the course of three months, you know, 40 that you sat in on and, and observed, and then many more happening uh, throughout the week, uh, that sounds like an, an awful lot. Mm-hmm and so it, it kind of raises for me that question of uh were these people who were who were coming back again and again you'll, you'll hear stories with exorcisms of this one took a long time it had to happen over the course of several weeks or yeah. several days um others it's i went to see the exorcist and i was i was liberated or i i was i was helped and i, I was able to, to move forward so when you're when you're looking at these cases and and the different
2: time frames what does it look like Uh. it's really different for each person it could depend on the severity of the possession you know there is a hierarchy in the demonic world just as much as there is a hierarchy in the angelic world so we think of the nine choirs of angels you know the the seraphim and the cherubim and the thrones the dominations the virtues the powers the principalities the archangels and the angels When one-third of the angelic choir fell, they fell from all nine choirs. So there is a hierarchy in the demonic world, and certainly these fallen angels now refer to the devil himself as their chief. So depending on the severity of the possession, you know, if it's kind of a weaker demon, they're always quick to go. If one is more dominant... I did an exorcism one time, for example, when the demon told me its name was Leviathan, a a demon mentioned in the Bible, the great sea monster, and it said it wasn't going anywhere because it had a right to be there. So demons will try to claim some right that they believe that they have. Of course, everything's just a bunch of lies and, and whatnot. Some of it could depend on if the person is still giving the devil a foothold in their life. You know, if they're not doing everything that I told them that they need to do, then the de- the demonic can use that as a way to kind of continue to have a hook in that person.
1: Hmm.
0: Maybe we could go a little bit then, like a, a timeline. If, if we were to try to go chronologically, so somebody uh, is who experiences uh, some kind of demonic activity in their life, um, where does that come from? And then, what is it that gets them to see you, or to see an exorcist? And then the process from their first meeting with you on Mm -hmm. what
2: what what does that whole uh, spectrum end up looking like? The most important thing to remember is that the the demonic doesn't have any power over us that we don't give to it either directly or indirectly. Because the reality is, we don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. It's the very ordinary aspects of our faith that will always keep the devil at bay. So we go to mass, we pray, we read the Bible, we celebrate the sacramental life of the church, we know and live out our faith. We're doing these things, the devil's already on the run. But I think we all know that faith is in decline in the lives of many people today. Even people who may have grown up in a traditional Christian home, You know, one out of every five Americans I just recently read identifies as being an atheist. Again, it's that complete rejection of God. And it does seem that in the apostate world, demons have a greater control on people who knew the truth of Jesus Christ and then walked away Mm -hmm. from it compared to maybe people in the so-called pagan world who are possessed and they've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And when it's proclaimed in front of them, it's one and done. So it does Mm -hmm. seem the reason why exorcisms have to be repeated is because of this notion of the apostate world again people knew the truth and then walked away from it and that's why they're being repeated but even though they're being repeated every exorcism session will provide some benefit to the one who is afflicted even if it doesn't bring about complete deliverance at that moment and people can bring about the affliction either directly or indirectly Directly meaning they know they're doing things that are contrary to God's laws for us. And maybe indirectly when they believe they're doing something is fun and entertaining, but they don't really understand the gravity of what they're doing. You know, for example, somebody might think that playing with a Ouija board, for example, is just a harmless board game. The devil doesn't care what our mentality is towards something like that. He can use that as an opportunity to uh, again try to get a foothold into our lives
0: hmm. so what, what would the difference be then between uh, doing something that's contrary to god's law committing sin for example um, and keeping a door open to to the demonic i mean What's what's the line there? Is, the, is there some type of sin? Is there some way of, of disobeying God's law that is more likely to lead to that sort of demonic activity in our lives um, or, or opening that door? Um, or is it something like unrepented sin? You know, as I'm, I'm thinking about this, that if, if I'm going to confession regularly, then of course I'm a sinner, all of us are sinners, but regular confession should maybe be the thing that, that helps that. But if I don't think of needing confession ever, I'm fine. I'm I'm mm-hmm. basically
2: a good person. Am I keeping a door open like that? What, what would you say? I think the key ingredient is repenting. You're right, we're all sinners, we all do wrong. But the question is, do we own it? Because mm-hmm. anything that we can name, we can deal with. The things that we deny will control us so if we deny that we're sinners and we're trying to objectify evil which is what the devil would want us to do to perceive evil as something good then we're giving the devil you know permission to be in our lives we've talked a lot today about the extraordinary activity of the devil again the infestation vexation obsession possession but there is also the ordinary activity of the devil that's rooted in temptation. And it's a four-stage plan of attack. They're words that all begin with the letter D. The devil gets us to buy into deception, his lies. The deception leads to division. We find ourselves broken. And when we're broken and we don't repent, then we look for something that's going to try to put the pieces of our lives back together. Diversion, you know, think of addictive behavior today, things that people do that they believe are going to make them happy, but they don't, and then it leads to discouragement. So deception, to division, to diversion, to discouragement, and then we have a choice to make. One pathway always leads to death, the complete rejection of God, so spiritual death, sometimes physical death. Think of the growing trend of suicide in our society today. But we're Christians, we're people of hope. One pa- The other pathway leads to discipleship. We have a reawakening of the importance of faith in our lives, and we recommit ourselves to God. So the key ingredient is to repent, to give it over to God, because anything we give over to God, the devil can no longer use that against us. Hmm.
1: I think if you took a sound bite of what you just said and put it into a political podcast, it wouldn't sound out of place at all.
2: Yeah, because there's, you know, I think today a lot of people live by three guiding principles. Number one, you may do whatever you wish. Number two, you are the God of yourself. And number three, no one has the right to command you. So we have this this distorted Mm -hmm. view of freedom, thinking that freedom means we can do whatever we want. But it was St. John Paul II who said that freedom, in the true sense of the word, means to live in the manner that God created us to live so when we're true to our creator that's freedom in the true sense of the word so if you think about it obedience to god and freedom go hand in hand when we start to believe that freedom means we can do whatever we want then we end up becoming slaves to our own passions and desires that's exactly Mm -hmm. what the devil did and that's exactly what he wants us to do so that we can join him in eternal damnation I've read before that
1: yeah father you got something to say?
0: no go for it man
1: I've read before that that obedience is the highest form of fasting mm-hmm. Um, and with that in mind what is the role so, so in scripture you see that you see that Christ tells his disciples they are unable to exercise a certain demon and he says this one can only be exercised by prayer and fasting I mean I, I'm I don't, I don't know actually know if he uses the word exercises. I actually, th- I don't think mm-hmm. he does, um, but it is within that context. Um, so I was curious what the role of fasting is, not only right for you as an exorcist, but then again by extension for like the Christian faithful.
2: Again, I think you're right. Fasting is rooted in obedience. It makes me think of our Blessed Mother, the greatest example of obedience and humility. You know, I often ask people. Do you know the final words that Mary ever speaks in the Bible? What are the final words that she ever says? Mm -hmm. And that's- Do whatever he tells you. That's exactly right. The wedding feast at Canaan and Galilee, once Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do, she remains silent. She's present, she's always there, but really what more is there to say? Do whatever Mm -hmm. he tells you to do, to be obedient. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're obedient to God, the devil's nothing to fear. And again, we're sinners, we fall mm-hmm. short. But acknowledge that and give it back to God. Repent, and God is always ready to forgive. You know, I read a book recently by Archbishop Fulton Shane, and the line kind of stuck with me where he spoke of divine ignorance. So venerable Archbishop you know, Shane was talking about Jesus on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said that if we're truly sorry for our sins, God's going to permit something incredible to happen on the day of judgment. God's going to choose to forget our sins and only see the love and goodness within our hearts. Think of the good thief on the cross. We don't even know why he's being crucified. But Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Think of the prodigal son who returns to the father and says, i've sinned against heaven and against you i no longer deserve to be called your son the father just listens he doesn't say you're right let's recount all the bad things you did he (laughs) forgets all of that and what does he say put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet bring out the finest robe and kill the fattened calf so again that notion of divine ignorance so if we can be obedient to god and again the times that we fall short and we repent Then going back to Archbishop Sheen, that notion of divine ignorance, the notion that God's love and mercy is the greatest thing that we can know. Can you give us uh, maybe a a little story of kind
0: of from your own, maybe your own experience with this of somebody who needed an exorcism, how they got to that point of, of needing the exorcism? what the experience was, the advice that you gave to them, and then the experience in the actual exorcism
2: itself to, their, mm-hmm. to that place where they were, they were liberated. There's a story from recent memory. A lady had been away from the church for 38 years, and uh, her neighbor was a very devout Catholic and had invited her to come back to the church. But she said, I don't think I can come back. You know, I'm not worthy, and you know, I've been away for too long. But she did agree for the uh, the local parish priest to come and visit her. And she told him while they were talking that she believed that she was possessed. And then the priest told me that in the midst of the conversation, it was like it was no longer this lady. There was something else that had taken over the body. And at one point, this person got up, punched him in the stomach, and began spitting on him and cursing him out. But he even said this is not, because it wasn't her. He goes, I don't know what it was, but it just was not her. So she agreed to meet with me. So uh, I'm having a conversation with her, her priest, and her friend came with her. And she tells me that she believed that she encountered the demonic after a very horrible thing in her life. So I hear some pretty horrible stories. So she said that when she Mm -hmm. was growing up, her father began to rape her at the age of seven and it continued over a five-year period. When she turned 12, her dad turned his attention to her younger sister. She was shattered, she was broken, and she said that she blamed God for allowing this to happen. So she rejected God and turned to the world of the occult. So she turned to sorcerers and witches and whatnot who said that they could help put the pieces of her life back together. But she said no matter what they did she was only broken even more so she begins to sob uncontrollably and then she kind of just belts out and says will you help me and i looked her right in the eyes and said jesus is the one who's going to help you and when i said that her eyes turned green and her pupils became slanted like a serpent and this voice comes out of her mouth very deep authoritative and says who's he he has no power over us. Now, again, whenever I do an exorcism, I prepare myself. I didn't do one at that moment. So, about a week later, we're in a a church, here in the archdiocese of Indianapolis, with the priest, that lady, her friend. The rite of exorcism begins, and everything the church does in an exorcism, all the ritual actions are meant to force the demonic to show itself. Because demons would prefer to remain mm. hidden. They know that they're being dragged into the light of Christ, and they know that when that happens, they're going to be defeated, so they will try to resist. But they're very arrogant. They can't accept the fact they're being commanded to do something by a creature that they consider to be inferior to themselves. So I bless the person with holy water, and as soon as the holy water hit the person's head, the demon manifested again. There's these green eyeballs with the slanted pupils staring me right in the eyes. And and the, the demons say to me, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long, and you're not strong enough. And then all these manifestations, the eyes rolled in the back of the head, the foaming at the mouth, the growling, the snarling, bodily contortions, you name it, all these things are going on. I do the litany of the saints calling upon Mary and the holy men and women of the church to be present at this particular prayer. The recitation of one or more of the Psalms, like Psalm 91, I need not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Mm -hmm. The reading of gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons. The prologue of John's gospel. The word became flesh, reminding us of the incarnation. Uh, Laying my hands on the head of the person, saying a prayer. There's a supplicating prayer addressed to God, who's asked to bring relief into the life of the person, a command to the demon itself. There's an insufflation prayer. It's breathing on the face of the person, invoking the Holy Spirit. And when I did that, because it recalls Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, it's the recognition that wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. So I breathe on the face of the person, invoke the Holy Spirit. The chair that the person was sitting in flew back 10 feet like it had been hit by Mm. a strong wind. And then there's a, a shriek and a scream, and the lady comes flying out of the chair and collapses onto the floor. Myself and the other priests go to lift her up, and she begins to praise and glorify God, telling me why she's wonderful in the eyes of God, why God loves her, why she's a child of God. And there's literally a glow about her. And the only way to describe the glow would be to think of a halo around the head of a person. They're mm. not radiating their glory, they're radiating the glory of God. And it's my experience that when somebody is possessed, there's almost like a shadow that's kind of over them. And when the demon is cast out, there is that sense of the glory of God. Did... um.
1: You, you've you mentioned earlier that there is a horrid smell when a, an individual is possessed. Was there a sweet-smelling fragrance ah, afterwards? Or you're back, to your, or has there we're ever back been? to your
2: favorite prayer, I see. You come <laughs> <jump> full circle. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That sense of glow and, you know, just to hear somebody praising and glorifying God that had been possessed, absolutely, there is a very sweet fragrance.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that her priest was there. Um I've I've heard in the past that um, if an exorcism is is taking place, the the pastor uh, can can be part of it, or the like the bishop. I, I the the story that I remember hearing was there was an exorcism that was being performed in a diocese, um, and the the person who was uh, who was receiving the ritual, who was receiving the prayer. Um, the bishop was away traveling, and his pastor also was away traveling. And when they there was a manifestation happening, um, and so they they called the pastor. The pastor said, "I'm on my way back. I'm, I'm coming back." And when the pastor crossed the town line into the territory of his parish, the manifestations started to to calm down. But the bishop was was away, and when the bishop the bishop was also traveling back. And they said they they got on the phone with the bishop to find out where he was, and when he crossed the border into the diocese, the manifestation stopped. Mm-hmm. That the presence within the territory, so the geographical territory of the parish and the geographical territory of the diocese mm-hmm. of, like the the parish pastor, the the head of the church in that in that specific mm-hmm. territory, and then the head of the church, uh, the the bishop, the apostle of the church, mm-hmm. uh, that made that made a difference. Is is that a uh, is that something that you've encountered? Is that, is that the case? Um, I think that's something true. I
2: heard about. And I was like, this sounds incredible, really fascinating. I think it's true. Again, the Bishop is the exorcist. So he has that power. He has that authority. I've been, had a, um, a priest one time doing an exorcism here in the archdiocese of Indianapolis who did not have permission from the Bishop to do it. Mm. And this was early on in my career in this ministry And uh, the demon manifested and said, I don't have to listen to you. You have no authority here. And the demon even said, I recognize the authority of the local bishop as the successor of the apostles, but who are you? You are nobody. I don't have to listen to you. So that notion of authority is so important. You know, a local pastor, I think that's important because people that I work with, I can't take them under my wing forever. going to need Mm -hmm. ongoing pastoral care and where are they Mm -hmm. going to get that the best it's when they're within their own local parish you know even with that said Mm -hmm. too that half of the people i deal with are catholic the other half are christians of other faith traditions other Mm -hmm. world religions or no faith background whatsoever
1: um with that in mind I'm I'm really curious about that the the idea of other Christians coming to a Catholic priest for an exorcism. Um, do they only think that that you're capable of it, like, or have they have they usually tried to receive this ministry through
2: their own church, or? It's a combination of both. I think there's some people that have tried within their own Christian faith tradition to get help, but it wasn't successful. Others have told me that their pastor didn't really believe in it and said, well, Catholics seem to know what they're doing in this regard, so you should go and talk to them. (laughs) They have holy water. (laughs) You know, the exorcism is Um, a ministry of charity, so the Church is always going to help those who turn to her. And Of course, we're going to function according to what the Church believes and teaches. The right is not adapted to what people believe individually. So even if somebody is a non-Catholic... And they turn to the catholic church for help we can only help them according to our beliefs Mm -hmm.
1: if so so i've heard before that a a good confession is more powerful than Mm -hmm. an exorcism um if someone's a non-catholic and and you have good reason to believe that they are in fact in fact you know suffering from a possession um do you have to require them to enter the church, go to confession and then proceed?
2: Or I think, you know, again there's sacramental confession and then there which would be for people that are fully initiated into the life of the church, you know, mm-hmm. you think about the sacramental life. Mm-hmm. You know, the question would be can somebody who's non-catholic go to confession? And sacramentally that, you know, we can split hairs there, but we can certainly get somebody to take ownership of what they've done. So in that sense, they Mm. can confess what they did wrong. They gave the demonic permission to afflict them. So getting them to own that is so important. Even people from other faith traditions, I try to get their minister to be involved as well. Mm. So again, it really needs, it isn't just what I'm going to do for someone What are they going to do for themselves? But they also then need to be rooted in some type of a church home. In fact, people that don't really have any type of faith background or have expressed no desire for faith, I find it Mm. difficult to work with those people. Because there's a growing trend I've seen where people will treat the Catholic priest as a magician, somehow believing that I have a bag of Mm. tricks that I can make all their problems right. go away but I tell people I don't have any special powers and abilities you know that power rests with the person of Christ and somebody really needs to enter into that relationship
1: right is it is it fair to say that it's it's not really you absolutely you know it's yep. you know and if so people are relying
2: on me we're all in trouble
0: so it, it, um, it's not about having the right cast, the old priest and the young priest. It's not It's right, not about right. having the right props, like I've got the bottle of holy water and I've got a bell or I've got a crucifix. It's, it's about something much, much yeah. deeper.
1: That makes sense. So, the, I mean, the externals uh, I of yeah, – yeah. like those
2: externals of the ritual matter. Those externals point to something greater. You think of the yeah. holy water, it points right. to our baptism right. into Christ. You think of Paul's letter to the Romans. Mm-hmm. Are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? again, the crucifix, Mm -hmm. the moment that Jesus is being crucified, the devil believes that he's won, but the moment of his perceived victory is actually the moment of his defeat. So again, the church is taking core beliefs from our Christian faith and throwing them in the face of the demons to get them to uh, manifest Mm -hmm. and then to cast them out.
1: Mm. Now, in, in an exorcism, have you ever seen... I'm going to use the word manifestation. It, it might not be accurate with angels and saints, um, but there's the hierarchy of demons. But have you seen like, quote unquote, a manifestation of, of a particular saint or the Blessed Virgin Mary or St. Joseph, you know, the terror of demons come to your aid in an exorcism?
2: I wouldn't say visibly to me, but visibly to the demons themselves. Like if there's a particular saint that shows up, it's like really? St. John Paul II, the demons will make a reference to that. When the Blessed Mother shows up, you know, what is she doing here? You know, and hmm. like Padre wow. Peel, there'll be a reference to him. So demons will acknowledge, and again, that's why the litany of the saints is so important. The church is calling mm-hmm. upon these saints to be present during this prayer of the church. And when they come, it really drives demons crazy because these are people
1: mm-hmm. who,
2: going back to that notion of obedience, who have that free that sweet fragrance of Christ. And to mm-hmm. demons, they are just repulsed by that. They prefer their own stench to kind of this glory that's emanating from mm-hmm. God himself. Hmm it's so fitting too that
1: that that it would be invisible to us cuz their aid is invisible in the mm-hmm. first place you know or, or again right maybe there's a better way to say that but like have you prayed have you adapted some of it into your own personal faith life right do you pray the litany of the saints every day do you
2: i think parts of that as important even taking it a step further i would say that in the 18 years that i've done this ministry it's really inspired me to be a better priest. Hmm. It's helped me to really see priesthood as a vocation. And for the word vocation, I believe it means a calling from God. I do what I do mm-hmm. because God has called me to do it, as opposed to an occupation. I think there's a danger with many priests today because we're pulled in so many different directions. You know, you look at the many different hats we wear. Priests have multiple assignments, and we can begin to see what we do as an occupation rather than a vocation. You know, I'm the pastor of mm. two parishes here in southeastern Indiana. You know, 50% of my time is is uh, taken up by exorcism ministry, and then just the normal everyday parish life, you know, that has to be dealt with. I have a priest friend in another state where him and another priest were just asked to take over seven parishes. Wow, and uh, the furthest one from where they live is ninety miles away. Oh, wow, wow! So That's if you think sad. about that, the danger of priesthood becomes occupation. It's busyness. It becomes functional, rather mm-hmm. than. Mm-hmm. This was a a reflection that Pope Francis gave in 2013 that priests need to be about unction and not function. So mm. unction, anointing people with the gladness and the good news of Jesus Christ, and not just functional whereby we, you know, you drive in, you celebrate mass, you jump in the car, and you go to the next church and do the same thing again.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm yeah. Father, you know, a lot of times, uh, let's say I've got a wedding rehearsal, uh, people come into the wedding rehearsal, and there's always somebody as they, as they walk through the door, they kind of ducks a little bit, and, it gives me the nervous look and says, "I'm I'm afraid that lightning's going to strike because I haven't been to church in a long time," uh, or or somebody they make a joke when they see the holy water. I can't touch that; it's going to burn me. Um, now, usually people are they're just making a joke and and they're they're trying to be funny. It's not funny, but they think it's funny, and I'm going to let them you know have that they think it's funny. But do you ever find that they- you should throw a holy <laughs> water on them? <laughs> That's one of my favorite days is, is when I get to do the sprinkling right um, because I absolutely – I don't know if you do this, Father. I take aim. I, I know there's certain people who, who who I'm gonna get, and I'm I'm like definitely looking to get to get them with the sprinkling. And then there's always that that like kid who's who's at the at the end of the aisle who's watching the whole thing. I like to do the backhand, so they don't they're not expecting it, but they get the backhand the backsplash of the of the holy oh, water. Oh, that's so good. Oh yeah, good. no, I'm yeah. I'm looking for you. I'm coming for you on those. Do days. Do you
1: use the one that's got the? Sh- it's not straw, but you know what I'm talking about on the end, or like the. Metal I use bell? the I use
0: the metal bell. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm good at uh, that. You got to use but, the straw. You, know. you get so much more <laughs> yeah. range in, in any case, coming back to this, um, <laughs> w- w- what would you say? Is, is that like the kind of thing to like, should I respond to that when, when somebody's saying, I'm afraid the church is going to fall on me or the holy water is going to burn? Like, should I try to engage that a little bit? and say, why
2: do you say that? I think that would be a good thing to yeah. say, <laughs> even when they, you know, kind of, in, you know, challenge them to think about, cause I think you know, these people are coming to us, maybe for a wedding or for Mm -hmm. a funeral. And so we need to take advantage of that opportunity to plant some seeds or to evangelize. You know, the church is gonna fall on me. No, the church isn't gonna fall on you. The church wants to put her arms around you and embrace you and welcome you back. Hmm. So Hmm. I think there are things that we can say or do that may just plant a seed. Into these people, because again, there's a lot of these folks that grew up in the church, but for whatever reason, they have just drifted away. And if somehow they stumbled back into the church because of a wedding, let's take advantage of that as an opportunity to evangelize. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, now I have some friends that have uh, that have like tattoos um, that have either pagan origin or like straight up demonic origin. Uh, so I'm just curious of how I should handle that.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's always praying about it and asking God for the wisdom of the right thing to say. Because I know, yeah, like tattoos now are just so prevalent in society or mm-hmm. to say, you know, why that particular tattoo? I know that during the uh, the time of St. Augustine in North Africa, There was a time when men who were joining the church would be in the building. They would stand behind a screen and literally strip down to their underwear, so to speak. And they would have to point to the tattoos on their body. And then they would have to renounce Mm. the demons that they represented. The notion that every time somebody chose to be tattooed, they were being branded. And it was a way of saying, who owns me? You know, here in my diocese we have many priests coming from India, and I remember one of them was my associate, and we were discussing, and he even said, "I don't understand the fascination with a tattoo because he said a tattoo is a way that you're branding yourself. It means that you belong to someone else. But again, I think we have to be mm-hmm. very cautious because maybe somebody in the moment thought that they wanted a tattoo and and went out and did this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. But again, to just say, well, what's that really all about? Tell me about that. Because again, Mm -hmm. I know a young man who got a tattoo of a demonic creature. He was much younger. He would tell you today that it was a dumb thing to do. But he's in the process Mm -hmm. of having it removed. And it's Mm -hmm. important for him to do that because he feels like by removing it, he's showing that he's kind of turning that page in the chapter the book of his life and taking on a new role in giving god his rightful place mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so on, on the subject of tattoos then um there there are people who get tattoos that are it's a it's in in memory of a a friend or a loved one um they they're getting them with the with a, a, an intention of of doing something that's that's good they're not getting them with uh with an intention of giving themselves to anyone or anything um are tattoos in and of themselves inherently problematic or does intention for the tattoo come into play at all?
2: I think the intention would be very important to look at. Yeah. And I would even challenge people though that if you wanna honor somebody, are there other ways that you can do that without marking up the human body? And of course, Mm -hmm. I would believe that there are ways that we can do that. We don't need to honor somebody by tattooing our bodies. But maybe that ask your priest to say mass for them. <laughs> that, that might be a sign of the failure of catechesis. You know, why are mm-hmm. we borrowing things from other traditions, if you will? Somehow mm-hmm. that would suggest that somehow our faith is lacking in something. You know, the church is not mm-hmm. lacking in anything. The church has the fullness of truth as revealed by Jesus Christ. So we don't need to borrow things from other traditions if you will i think that's the danger of the world of the occult you know we're borrowing things but we don't need to do mm. that we don't need to blend you know christian faith with other faith traditions or anything else like that
0: hmm. 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 so besides tattoos or you know that kind of stuff a lot of times people ask how, how do, I, do i protect myself from evil influences or how do I protect my children, my family from, from those evil influences? Uh, so what are some of the, the risk factors for placing your, yourself or, or another person um, at that disposal of, of demons versus some things that people can do to really
2: protect themselves mm-hmm. and, and fortify themselves, their families and their homes? Yeah, I think I, I would just reiterate what I said earlier that as Catholics, if you're going to mass praying reading the Bible, so knowing and living out the word of God, celebrating the sacramental life of the church, and knowing and living your faith. Because, again, I think a lot of times people make choices in life, maybe to get that tattoo, just because they don't really understand fully our faith and how we're called to live out the great gift of life that God has given to us. So just knowing our faith. And I do think that that's the challenge today, is that catechesis is just not good, Overall, in many parts of the church today, we're failing to really educate our young people about the core beliefs of what it means to be a Catholic, what it means to be a Christian. You know, it's not just about Mm -hmm. rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. And when you live in a relationship with somebody that you love, you don't do things because it's a law or a rule. You do it to reflect your love for them. So if we truly are in a relationship with God and we love God— naturally we are going to want to do the things Mm -hmm. that God wants us to do just to show up that genuine love that we have for God. But Mm -hmm. I do think that, at least in the years I've been a priest, I think one of the challenges we face is that that there is such a distorted image of God out there. It's almost Mm -hmm. like we've recreated God in our image and likeness, so we want God to fit our expectations rather than us realizing that we are in God's image and likeness and we need to mold and shape our lives around him.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Um it kind of continuing on on that point then uh, the, the time of year, again, this is a our, our, our rare timely episode that we're doing, um, but with the time of year and, and Halloween coming around, uh, a question that comes up, I'm sure you've received it many times yourself, um, you're like trick-or-treating, yes or no, or is it okay
2: for us to dress the kids up in a costume for Halloween? Um, no, if you're a kid, who wouldn't want to put on a costume? Who wouldn't want to get candy? I mean, that's just a part of being a kid. We right. shouldn't rob kids of of having the fun and joy, but mm-hmm. I think we can have that fun and joy Without glorifying evil, mm. you know why is it that Halloween has become the second biggest spending holiday, right after Christmas? A lot of people today are putting up all kinds of these Halloween decorations in their yard. You know, at least here in Indiana, I think that what's Thanks. become so popular is this huge skeleton that people yeah, put in looking their yard. At right the, now, through the twelve foot <laughs> skeleton, yeah. <laughs> and now they come in, I think, like six different forms. The one the yeah. other day was a big scarecrow that had a sickle in it, sand, you know, just hideous looking. So again, there's yeah. nothing wrong with, you know, having an imagination and make believe. That's a part of being a kid just as much as right. eating candy. But again, mm-hmm. we can do those things and have fun without somehow giving attention to the devil. I,
1: I I'm glad you asked that, Father, because my wife and I have, I mean, we have a four and a, well, actually, he's five months old now because that's how time works. It moves forward. Um, it is uh, linear, you know. Right, yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, like him being five months old, we've never done Halloween as parents, you know. Um, and we said, oh, well, you know, this year we'll we'll dress him up like like St. Michael the Archangel because his name is Michael. Um, but knowing that the origin of Halloween was, you know, dress your kid up as a saint or, or or even just the idea of dressing up as a saint, we said, oh, well, maybe we'll lean into that, you know, and it'll be a way of... It'll be a way of cultivating a Catholic culture in our house. Mm-hmm. Um and he can still get Twizzlers. <laughs> um you know, like I'm we're not anti candy, believe me. Yeah, I because should be if he gets
2: it, then you but, get to eat it too. <laughs>
1: that's right, yeah. Um But I but I do think it's interesting that that it has gotten seemingly so demonic, you know? And and the example that I would give is Last week, I walked down the street from my house to a library, and there was a there was a shelf that said "banned books." And on this banned bookshelf, uh, the first thing that I noticed was *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and I was like, "Okay, I can't I, like I haven't fact checked this, but I can believe that there was a time where you know racism in America was prevalent, and therefore *To Kill a Mockingbird* might have been banned." And then next to that was there was a book about. Um, how the right rights for trans kids have been removed and kids can't, you know, have surgeries anymore. And I was like, okay, those two things aren't the same. I see how you made the connection. I wouldn't agree with it, but let's move forward. And then next to that was a book called The Pagan's Guide to Halloween, Magic, Wicca, and you know, whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, that, that book certainly belongs on a banned book list, you know? Um, And so I've actually, I've, I have, I was glad you asked it father because I have had the conversation with my wife of like, oh my gosh, how the heck are we going to raise a kid in a culture that's holding these three things under the same title? Like that's, it seems to be like sheer insanity. Um, Anyway, it was a digression and a tangent without much of a question, but I wanted to share.
0: Thanks for sharing. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Thanks
1: father. (laughs) All right.
0: The other one that comes up all the time, Harry Potter where do we stand on, on Harry Potter? I, I read Harry Potter because I was challenged by a third grader uh, to, to, to read. um, And I challenged her back by telling her to read Lord of the Rings. I felt that was a good counter argument. <laughs> um,
1: mm-hmm. Lord
0: of the Rings may have been a little bit past her reading level as a third grader, but you <laughs> yeah. know, the kid challenged me directly. I had, I had no choice. I had to hit back. Uh, <laughs> but w- there's, there's concern that people will, will bring up. Um I, My response has always been, it's quite clearly to me, it's, it's a, it's fiction. That seems quite obvious. Uh, There is, at the same time, there's, there's some Latin ish sounding language that they use. And so could there be something there, but people bring it up and it it comes up often
2: enough. Um, Where do you stand with that kind of stuff, Father? I would lump all that in that literature into the category of the entertainment industry again. I think the danger with literature like Harry Potter or whatever is that it may present, you know, being a witch or a wizard as a position of power. Speaking mm-hmm. about, you know, casting spells on people could be something good. Usually when people ask me about Harry Potter, I like to respond with a question. And the question is, which books can your children more readily recite? the books of the Bible or the books of Harry Potter. And -hmm. if they can quote Harry Potter more than they can the Bible, that's probably where the problem comes. You know, if you tell children not to read certain types of literature, that's all that's going to do is cause them to be even more fascinated with it. (laughs) But I think if children were Mm -hmm. able to read these books and filter it through their Catholic faith, then it could be a teachable moment because then they Mm -hmm. would be able to see things that are inconsistent with our Catholic faith. But again, I think the challenge we face today is that, unfortunately, people know this type of literature more than they know our faith. Hmm.
1: I think, Father, I would also throw in there something like, uh, "That's funny." I said, "Father," I'm talking to two priests. <laughs> I guess the both of you. Um, I are you familiar with Percy Jackson, the the Greek mythology series? I've heard of it. Never, never picked it up. I'm not that familiar. No. That, fair enough. Right. So it's a it's a it's a n- another young adult fiction based in a greek mythology world as opposed to a, a wizarding world if you will um and i read them as a kid and now when i was reading them my parents weren't reading them along with me right i was just on my own and i remember saying "Poseidon, if you want to be my dad, i'm okay with that." You know, and that's I, and as an adult i came to recognize like I granted after a reversion, I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> oh no, that that was bad." Um. But but my point being, like, I very innocently fell into that as a second grader, you know, and it was because I wasn't being guided. Um, and so I think that it's easy sometimes for parents to say, "Well, that won't happen to my kid." You know, like my kid won't misinterpret Harry Potter, but it but it happens.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm yeah so some guidance then like i I think yeah parents remembering that they've got a role to play in in guiding their children with whatever entertainment they're consuming Mm -hmm. it's important for them to to have somebody who they can uh talk it over with
2: talk it through yeah and matt i was gonna say i was gonna say your comment made me think of a psalm 95 verse Mm 5 where it says the gods of the nations are demons the gods of the nations are demons so If it's not the one true God, then the question would be, Mm -hmm. what are people worshiping? So you go back to Greek mythology, Egyptology, and all of that sort of thing. The question Mm -hmm. is, what are people worshiping? And that's the great Mm -hmm. sin out of the Old Testament is the sin of idolatry. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: How about when we we talk about um, spiritual warfare? And the the topic comes up, it's very popular. Um, and and people want to they, they want to put on the armor of God. They're mm-hmm. they're taking Saint Paul at his word, put on the full armor of God. And somebody has had uh, a maybe a, a, an awakening in their own faith life, they they really want to do it. Um and so you'll find that there's there's prayers, uh there's there's prayers for for defense on on your own. Mm-hmm. Like to, to pray individually, um, you'll you'll hear about perimeter prayers, binding prayers, and, and things like that. Um, but at, at what point, how do we balance um, appropriately using those kinds of prayers and those invocations and, and that kind of spiritual arsenal, but using it in, in an appropriate, ordered way mm-hmm. so that somebody who's not really in a position to do this isn't taking on maybe more authority or... Yeah. Uh, more spiritual battles than is really healthy for them are good
2: yeah we can certainly pray these prayers on our own behalf we can't really pray them for someone else unless we have authority over them so you think of a you know a father authority over his children certainly has that you know ability to pray you think of a religious leader like the priest in a parish we talked earlier about you know The authority of the bishop or the pastor of the parish and how why that's so important. So again, it is important for people to realize that if we're going to pray deliverance prayers, spiritual warfare prayers over people that we should have authority over them. And if we don't have that authority, then that's not something that we should do. Even when it comes to spiritual warfare prayers, I often tell people that to me they're like a prescription It may be something Mm -hmm. that we need at a certain point in our lives for a set period of time. But at least from my own experience, I don't think that spiritual warfare prayers need to become a part of anybody's daily prayer routine. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a book we have on our shelves, and maybe there's a time when we really feel like we're under attack, and maybe we need to take it down from the shelf and offer up some of these prayers. I think that's a healthy thing to do. I think the danger might be that people become so fixated on spiritual warfare prayers that the focus shifts to the devil rather than on God and I don't think it's mm-hmm. healthy for us to begin to see the devil everywhere and as the cause of every mm-hmm. one of our misfortunes so again we need to have a healthy balance of when it comes to the reality of the devil and e- evil in our world but again the mm-hmm. focus should always be on the greater power of God
0: on that note of of keeping the balance and not Necessarily seeing the devil behind every misfortune or difficulty that we that we have. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who, listening to this, is reflecting um, and thinking that there might be a spiritual problem that they've got? Uh, perhaps there's there's a demonic influence somewhere in their life uh, of of some whatever the degree might be. How can they go about discerning that? And where would you point them?
2: The number one place to go would be go and talk to your own parish priest. You know, if you're sick, what do you do? You go see your family doctor, who then may refer you to a specialist. So people should go and talk to their parish priest. He should listen to them, provide them pastoral guidance or counseling. He can hear their confession. Maybe they need the anointing of the sick. But again, turn to the parish priest who can provide some general pastoral care. And then if that priest believes that they need some more specialized care, then that priest could refer that person to the exorcist in the local diocese. And if there's not an exorcist to the priest that perhaps the bishop has identified as the go-to person in the diocese to deal with these matters. Hmm. Does every diocese in the United States in fact have an exorcist? They do not. They do not. Technically they do because it's the bishop, but you know, if it's a priest appointed by the bishop Not every diocese does have that. There's now a training school in the United States to train exorcists, and uh, it opened about seven years ago, and they now have about 300 graduates, priests who've gone through that program. Wow. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have been appointed exorcists, so they've been educated, so the bishop does have a priest that he could turn to because a, Mm a bishop can appoint a stably appointed exorcist, or he can appoint any of his priests on a case-by-case basis to do this particular prayer of the church. So even Mm -hmm. though some dioceses may not have a stably appointed exorcist, I think most, if not all, at least have a priest that is able to deal with these matters.
0: So if you were speaking to the bishops uh, on the subject
2: of the ministry of, of exorcism, what would you say to to the bishops? I think the uh, the appointment of an exorcist is an indication that the church is listening because there's a lot of people that are suffering out there today. And that suffering may be mental, it may be physical, it may be spiritual, but a lot of the people do believe that it's spiritual. So at least by having an appointed exorcist, it lets people know that the church is listening because if the church isn't listening, unfortunately, people may turn to the wrong sources to get the help they need. Maybe a so-called professional exorcist. Maybe they turn to the world of the occult and somehow believe that that's going to help them. So I think the hmm. m- number one thing I would say is that the appointment of an exorcist in a diocese is a clear indication to people that the church is listening to them.
0: Hmm. Something that I'm noticing is, as, as we've had this conversation and you speak about people who have are, are coming for exorcism, not once are those people spoken of as evil. Yeah. There's not even a focus on, on their sin, even though there's there's almost certainly sin involved. Kind of in the same way that we might uh, look at somebody who's struggling with mental illness and we don't just automatically say, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist wouldn't just say, oh, you're crazy. Uh, there's, there's rather that sense of these are people who are suffering, mm-hmm. and that reality of suffering needs to be needs to be honored. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are we here to do? We're we're here to alleviate that suffering. In this case, that spiritual suffering and that spiritual burden of demonic influence. Um, do you ever find that somebody's fear that they are evil? is something that interferes with
2: the exorcism, or is it something that actually drives them to embrace it more? I think they embrace it even more, because the clear distinction must always be made between that person as an individual and the demon itself. For example, Mm -hmm. when somebody is possessed, all the actions of that body are now wholly defined by the demon and no longer by that person. So once the demon manifests, if I'm working with John Doe, I would never say John Doe did this or said that. I would always say the demon did this. Because again, the demon is now treating that body as if it were its own.
0: Hmm. Okay. Matt, you got anything else?
1: Uh I don't think so. I am <laughs> I, I well the I guess the only other thing that I had gone into this interview wanting to ask was If your experience of faith is not one of uh, faith, but but of almost of sight, you know, they say we walk by faith, not by sight, Um, but you've seen a lot, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least you've seen a lot that I haven't seen, you know? So I was curious about that.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot of things. But one of the things I've learned over the years is that I don't really focus on what The demonic is doing. That was something I learned early on. So when I was training in Rome and when one of the demons manifested and caused the body in front of me to start levitating and rise up out of the chair, and I'm looking at this kind of in disbelief, and the priest training me just reached over and took his hand and put it on the head of the person and pushed the body back down into the chair. (laughs) And not once did he even pause from the prayers that he was saying, It was almost like saying, really? That's all you got? I'm not impressed.
1: (laughs) Right. I guess. And I guess it's because those things are really just distractions from the prayer, right? Like if I'm saying the rosary, what's the devil going to try and do? He's going to try and distract me. You know? So it's kind of like that on a way bigger scale. Usually things don't float in front of me while I say the rosary. (laughs) I'm just being honest.
0: Thanks for that honesty, Matt. I was. You
1: You can always count on me to be honest.
2: All right. Wow.
1: Thank you for taking well, the time. Yeah, my it. pleasure.
2: Well, Good this, to be with you. Should, this is fantastic. Yeah. We and should thank probably
1: you. plug that you have a a course through Emmaus Academy.
2: I do. I um, recently, you know, during COVID lockdown, I wrote a book on exorcism. Oh. So they asked me if I would do that. I said, when would I ever find time? But I found time during <laughs> the lockdown. So I wrote a book, uh, Exorcism, the Battle Against Satan and His Demons. And then I recently did a 10-course presentation from Emmaus Academy just on exorcism itself. Hmm. And again, the purpose of all of this is just trying to evangelize people and get people to Mm -hmm. think about, ultimately, what do you really believe? You know, it's one thing to sit in the pews on Sunday to go through the motions of one's faith, but it's another thing to sit back and say, does all this really matter? Hmm. Well, it's powerful stuff and, and really
0: fascinating to hear just on, on that level of it. this is interesting, but also really profound to think that this is a, a way that God has called you to, to serve the church. So, Father, thank you for, yeah. for what you're doing. Yep, my pleasure. And to bring souls to Christ and to bring them to healing. And thanks for joining yes, us thanks, and Father. helping our listeners to have a, a better perspective on all this. It's, it's great talking
2: to you. Thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome. God bless. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the tangent underscore catholic on Instagram, or even donating at veritascatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.